Last time I did this, I lost a finger. I'm just reaching into a bag. <laughs> no, all fingers will be preserved. <laughs> for now, at least. Okay, I have a question for you. Does regular water and a nice glass taste better? Uh, I, yes, it does taste better. Tell us about marketing. Because this is when I think about marketing in general, I think about presenting something that is quite simple as water in a nice box or in a fancy glass. Yeah. So that's why to me it tastes better. But that's why I always say like to me it would taste better. To someone else that it may not taste better because that person may not value something. So when I always think of marketing, whenever you're trying to sell something to someone, does that person care about the image of it and how that would make them feel when they're drinking from the glass? If you just care about, you know, you grew up, let's say, like hiking a bunch and you're an outdoor person, you know, really went to a fancy dinner party, you're not going to care about that. You're like, oh, this is normal. But if you grow up more in that environment, you would totally think that that tastes better. That's really interesting. Um, when you think about, yeah, when you think about what you value, it really depends on your background, where you came from. Um, speaking of which, where did you grow up? So I grew up in a town called Columbia, Maryland, which is right in between Baltimore and D.C. Um, now, Maryland's kind of, like where I grew up was a interesting town. It was like the show Desperate Housewives in regards of like, it was like an upper middle class neighborhood, but at the same time, like next to like a farm country. So Maryland's like that hybrid of just big city and just nothing around you. And now where my parents live, literally five minutes away from the house I grew up, now they live like on a bigger house in um, like five acres of land surrounded by horses. So within like 10 minutes of driving Maryland, you can see just so many different things in just one, one spot. That's wonderful. When I was looking through your social media platform, uh, specifically Instagram, there was something that really caught my eye. Um, there was a, a reel where you were holding a bell pepper <laughs> and you were talking about an important exercise that companies don't quite don't do often, which is going through the purchase funnel themselves. Yeah. The entire time of the video, I was thinking, is he going to cut that bell pepper? Yeah. How did that idea come about? Um, that idea came about because I was at my parents' home visiting just over the you know the holidays, and I'm like, you have to be able stand out. That's not actually something that's like going to really stand out. But I looked around my environment and said, what can I do that's different than what I, like what I normally post as a video? And so my mom just has, she loves cooking. So I was like, what is the most ridiculous looking apron I can find? And then I want to wear a hairnet because who doesn't want to wear a hairnet? I'd have a big chef hat. Otherwise, I would have done that. And the idea is like a lot of the content everyone produces is the exact same because we all say great information. So then it's like, how do you just bring out your, your personality? So I was like, what can I do that like, brings out my most personality while still giving like normal, valuable content that you normally will opt in to, to listen to me from? I love that. Speaking of which, one of the videos that I researched um, this week when I was preparing for this interview was this video where a woman left a comment, and I quote, Why do I watch your videos even though I have no need to do email marketing? Why email marketing? Why do I love email marketing? Mm -hmm. I like... I love it so much because I messed up at it so many times that I'm like, I should probably understand how to do this. But the real origin behind it dates like way back to when I was in college um, because I fell into like a super deep state of depression at this time period. We can get into the story when I came back after living abroad in Israel for a year. And during that time period, I like forgot how to speak because how sometimes mm -hmm. our mind can shut us down. And 
I relearned how to talk by writing the words I needed to say to literally communicate. I'd carry around a notebook and be like, I need this, but I would write it because I just couldn't say it. Mm -hmm. So that planted the seeds of it. And then when I got into my first job, which was working in politics, I had to set my own meetings to raise money. And I found the easiest way for me to book my own like sales calls, like in-person uh, fundraising meetings was through email because I felt like I could show the most personality. I could write the way I wanted to really communicate that I might have stuttered on the phone to say. And I just fell in love with the concept of conveying what you're trying to say in, wor in written words to get a response. I was... This is an example of how sometimes you get recommendations based on what you talk about or based on what you search. So when I was looking at your Instagram and five minutes later, I went into my recommendations to just look at what is recommended to me. I came across this picture and I will post it up here that I wanted to show you. <laughs> yeah. So it says, I hope this email finds you well, how the email found me and the picture of a dead person. First, how hilarious. I really had a good laugh of it, out of it. But second, when people say, hope you're well, hope you're doing well, hope this email find you well, how are you, etc. Is there a place for personalization in email? Or is there such a thing as email etiquette? That's a great question. So I feel like we grew up in school, like when you're taught to write MLA format or Chicago format, like you're taught to write proper, right? A paragraph intro and then supporting and then the close. So we're so used to being taught to write very structured because that's how we were graded. And if you wrote the wrong way, you got a bad grade, which means you didn't get into the right college or job. And so that's been ingrained in you to write a certain way how the teacher or professor wanted you to. So probably if you worked in corporate and you had to write an email, you have to, you're following what you're programmed. But nowadays, everyone writes that way. But that's not what stands out. Personality mm. stands out. So if you can straddle that fine line of being professional because no one wants you to come across as like, being a dick, but also then being able to have like show your personality through it, that is that hybrid you need to really stand out, especially in someone's inbox. I remember I grew up in the post-Soviet Union space and I had an assignment in my uh, Russian language class. Yeah. And the assignment said, here's a topic, write an essay about it. I got minus one. For reference, in the US you get letters, yeah. right? And A is the highest grade you can get. In, in, in post-Soviet Union space, it's Minus one is the worst that you can ever have. Oh, really? Five is the best. Usually no one gets minus one. Okay. They get one. I get minus one. So when you when you talk about having creativity and personal personality yeah. in how you communicate in email, personally, on social media, I think you we have to almost retrain ourselves because for eleven years, twelve years, depending on what country you grew up in. You were taught to speak in a very formal language so that you don't get minus one. Yeah. And I also, so uh, one of my partners, his name is Yoga. He's a phenomenal writer. And he, one of his claim to fame is that he watches more TV than anyone else that I know. And I don't know, maybe your experience is different, but when I first started in the entrepreneur space, they're like, cut out TV, cut out distractions, only read personal development. And that's good for uh, training your mindset, but after a while you feel very robotic. The best ideas and the best creativity, I believe, come from consuming a ton of content like movies, mm. pop culture. That's what yoga does and that's why he's a phenomenal writer um, because of how much we just consume. And so like that, I believe, helps you break out of that traditional writing style because now you get to see someone that you love on TV be like, oh, how would he or she say it? Oh, that's interesting. How can I say it in my own words?
how do you consume information in a place where the information is censored? So you would, well, the one way around that you can get a VPN and then you can hide your IP address. Thank God for VPNs. Yeah, thank God for VPNs. Um, the other way is like depends on the content you want to consume. So it depends on what you're writing. But um, there's different ways of finding adjacent topics that can still give you insight to what that conversation or what that main show would be talking about. So you can pick up on tidbits of it. But if you need to actually watch the show, do a VPN because that will save your life. Speaking of saving your life, when I moved to the United States about nine years ago, to me and still till today, U.S. is the greatest country in the world. You come here with literally $300 in your pocket, which I did, and you're able to move from making $6 an hour to making six figures when you're 23. Yeah. For a lot of people, unfortunately, even if they grew up here, that concept is not an easy one to grasp. And have you experienced that in the entrepreneurship space? When being creative and having freedom of thought is essential, arguably, is the most important thing to have because the products that you create depend on your creativity and how free you are. Um, talk to me a little bit about growing up here in terms of how did you become an entrepreneur? Did the environment affect your mindset? Um, did you experience the, the level of creativity that you have right now because you were here? Hmm. Um, I'm curious to know because then I will be able to compare to how I grew up. Sure. Uh, for everyone listening, I did grow up in America, so I didn't have that other background like you had, which is incredible what you've been able to build because that's very difficult coming from you. where you came from. Um, I didn't ever want to be an entrepreneur. At least it was like not really a big mm. thought in my mind. I, um, I was one of those kids growing up that like, I love sports. I love hanging out with friends. I enjoyed, you know, flirting with girls. Like I was very much like a like a teenage kid. When I went to Israel for the first time in 2011, that was the first time I left my bubble. Mm. And upon that, I'm Jewish. I got, got to connect to my roots. But what that really did was like open up the worldview to me. And then from there, that led me to one of my first jobs at APAC, which was in politics. And I fell so in love with that job because I knew I was making a difference. And that taught me writing, that taught me copywriting, that taught me sales. But what was interesting is I thought I would be at APAC for a long time. It wasn't until I actually got promoted from the local office, which was Fort Lauderdale at the time, to the Chicago office. And I asked if I could take like three months off because my contract ended before mm -hmm. my new contract started um, to go back to Israel and just you know explore, hang out, and then come back and work when my contract started. And that boss at the time said no. And he's like, you got to come tomorrow and then you got to like start working. And I got really mad because in that moment I was like, I don't want anyone else to ever tell me what I can or can't do. I want to have the ability to make my own decisions. And I'm still very fine with working in a company where I'm like in the top five of command because I don't need to be the top, top person. I just love the freedom and ability to really impact change. And I felt like when he was taking that away from me, mm -hmm. I was like, I need to start my own thing to develop my own skill sets, to make sure I never am in a position where someone can tell me yes or no. If I want, if I want to do something, I know it's going to be like better for my life. I've um, a lot of people that follow me may or may not know that I work in tech, mm -hmm. and following the chain of command, even though this is not military, working in corporate America, some might argue it's way less than way easier than working in a regular uh, blue collar job. However, you do have to follow some hierarchy. Yeah. And when you come with your set of skills, your knowledge, and you're junior, 
what would you recommend to a person who strongly believes or is passionate about something, but the person that they report to don't necessarily support them? When you say not support, like not support their career ambition, not support them learning their creativity and skill set, is that what you're meaning? We can th- we can say both. Okay. Um, the first thing is like if if they find in that role that they're getting the information that they need to progress, stay in there, suck it up. You're not always going to have the best boss in anything you do. But if you believe what you're getting from that opportunity will advance you in two to three more years, that's still good for you to be. If you find you're in that position and you're not getting the information you need, not getting the mentorship, then you can look to pivot. But what I found was I was able to get mentorship outside of my initial like um, my, my initial boss where I still felt like I was progressing until the point where I realized I was not progressing anymore. So I'm never the advocate of like quitting before you have something else. I get some people love to burn their boats. I it's not in my DNA. I rather like, hey, this is working, knowing I have something I'm working on, and then connect the dots to be on that other project once that is in position. I like that better. Burning burning your boat almost is like a privilege. Yeah. Right? I think when we think about the working class in America or any group of people that currently post-pandemic mm-hmm. looking for a job and trying to make a better life for themselves, we often find people that do exactly that, the opposite. They burn their bridge. They they say, F it, I don't yeah. want to do this anymore. Um, and I find it really fascinating, for lack of a better word, because being able to say, hey, I don't want to do this, is a privilege. Because for a lot of people, if you can't hold a job, you're not going to eat. Your family's not going to eat. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that is something that I've experienced a lot, especially in New York City. I lived in New York City for about eight years. And... So many people around me would tell me, oh, um, why don't you do what, go for your dreams. Do what you're passionate about. And in my mind, that was never something that made sense. Because when you literally don't have money to buy food, how can you be, how can you do what you're passionate about? No, I'm with you. And that's the thing that drives me bonkers too. Because I learned the hard way who you're taking advice from. And then does it make sense in your particular situation in life? And I also came to my inner peace because like I used to be so thinking like that was the only route, like, you know, burn and go. But then I'm like, if it takes me five years later longer to accomplish my dreams, so be it, because I know we're gonna God willing, we'll be living a long time, healthy life. It's okay. The idea is that why put yourself in a jeopardizing position if you don't need to? Take risks, but don't cut yourself off if you don't need to do that. So whenever I hear that advice, I'm always like, Time and place, does it fit with me right now? If not, stay on the path. When you take risks, and I would like to go back a little bit and talk about mental health. Yeah. How does preserving your mental health align with taking risks in business? I think, oh, that's a very good question. I think if you don't have a strong foundation, it, don't take any risks. Because, mm. like, uh, so I, um, like I was mentioning, 2014, like, that was when I was suicidal. I was, like, super depressed. and I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, thank you. Uh, it was also a blessing. It was the greatest thing that happened to me. And I'm happy to share all that story. But if I didn't go through that moment, I would not, like, have more of the mindset I do now. But I also try to make it so clear, and my partners make fun of me for it all the time. There are plenty of days I wake up and I'll be like, oh, my God, I can't do this. I don't want to do this anymore. Why don't I find a cushy corporate job, all that stuff? Because entrepreneurship is hard. And I don't think it's talked about as much as like, it feels like it's so flashy to be an entrepreneur. Dude, it can suck, suck like most days. There was this, um, I think I, I posted something last night because a great story. It was like, 
an Olympian talking to their Olympic athlete saying, and she said, I'm having a very, very bad day. And he was like, that's normal. One third of your days are supposed to suck. One third of your days are supposed to be okay. And one third of your days are supposed to be doing good. That means two thirds of your days, you're not having good days. And that's just part of the process. And if you're not okay with that, you're not, this is not for you. I've started doing mindset coaching a few months ago. And one of the techniques that um, Laura St. John, I'll mm -hmm. put her link uh, somewhere here. Um, she, she came up with this tool called Happy List. You write a list of things that make you happy in your day, small or big. And when you get out of the door, if say on your happy list it says strangers opening doors for each other, yeah. you will automatically move one degree to the left or one degree to the right. Why? Because you already know that that's something that makes you happy. Oh, you go like outside that. and you see it. Yeah. Whereas other person who in the same exact circumstances, same exact city, they will see that... Um, Two people are arguing, right? So what you were saying that in the day of entrepreneur, there will be hard times. Yeah. There will be good times. Yeah. But it's up to you to decide what those good days are, what those bad days are, and what do you do with them. Yes. What do you do with your bad days? Uh, I go salsa dancing on my bad days. <laughs> I, I learned that, that that works for me. It was like whenever I have a very bad day, there is a few things if the opportunity presents itself. Donate money if the opportunity like that day someone's like, I need mm. something, right? Buy a homeless person a meal, whatever it is. Um, do something, whether it's like yoga or dancing or like I, I try to then do something fun that I know that I really enjoy because if I just sit and dwell on that, again, this is me, how I operate. I'm a stew. I'm going to create a whole narrative in my mind. It's going to take me so much longer to get out. Mm. So my one of my therapists from like, again, forever ago told me like, you must anchor your, like you said, happy moments, like throughout your week. So these are mandatory, non-negotiable happy moments that you're mm -hmm. doing. Therefore, if you have a bad day and that happens to fall on a happy, uh, happy day that you're doing, how can you really have that bad day knowing you're doing something that you love afterwards? So at least, worst comes worst, your day is neutral. Yeah. So I was like, ah, I love that. So I make sure almost every day I'm doing something happy for me. So my worst days, I'm like, ah, okay, it's an okay day. It's not a bad day. It's interesting you say that. For the longest, I was not comfortable with an okay day. Mm. Why? I don't know. So there's something lazy about being neutral. Interesting. Was that like an internal conversation with yourself? Like, Perhaps. I'm better. I can do this. When you live in a big city like New York or yeah. California or any big city in the world, you're worth directly tied to what you do and how much you do. Yeah. So when it's a neutral day, do, are you even doing anything? Now, was it neutral to whom? Like, what was your standard of defining mm. if it was neutral? That is a very good question because everything is circumstantial, case yeah. by case. Yeah, I think it was by the standards of the people around me and the okay. city that I was living in, for sure. So in that case, there was like benchmarks that other people were hitting that you weren't hitting? Okay. Yeah, and it wasn't like, say, a month out of a year. It might have been a few days out of the year where I felt like, Neutral, neutral sucks. <laughs> I don't want to feel neutral. I want to feel great. That's great though. I love this thread. So I'm happy going deeper on this. Whatever you want. Okay. Because um, that's that's fascinating to me. Because it's like, do you, do you want to continue on that thread? Yeah. Because like, the more... So have you experienced burnout? Oh, I have. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Oh, it feels like everyone, right? I think I'm a lifetime member. <laughs> exactly. Um, when I... I, I feel like we're similar in our personalities of like we have big dreams for ourselves. We see ourselves in a certain light and we don't 
reach that light, we think we can, we're, I'm speaking to myself, I think I can be a failure if I don't reach that, mm. what I'm supposed to do in that day. But then I'm like, if I don't hit that, I burn myself out. And if I burn myself out, I'm down for the count for longer than it took me to shoot that shot for the day to reach an amazing day. So I had to find a like an equilibrium of like, I finished what I call revenue generating activities. I did that minimum every single day, even on a terrible day, knowing that that's the minimum things I have to do to progress the business or progress my happiness. And if I fall short of a medium things or, uh, you know, I do it later things, it's okay because the RGAs were taken care of. That helped me. I don't know if like what you do. to. You I think know. for me, I had to do a lot of unlearning. I was raised with Soviet values for 19 years mm. until mm. I moved to the United States. Being different, being successful, being someone who thinks outside of the box is looked down upon. Um, you pretty much will hear, why are you trying to be different? Do you think you're better than everybody? Um, I think immediately that bruises people's ego because yeah. if you're trying to do better, therefore I am not as good as you and therefore do I have to change? I think we can even see that thread in relationships. Yeah. When one partner is getting better at something, the other partner might not necessarily be supportive and express that in a negative way and say something that might hurt them without realizing that actually you're experiencing ego bruising, right? Yeah. You don't want... The question in your head is, do I have to change now that this person is getting better? Instead of addressing that, you start spreading negativity around the other person who is succeeding in life. What kind of negativity have you experienced when you started to, um, when you became an entrepreneur? What kind of negativity have you experienced? Have you experienced negativity from your family? Because I think that's a big one for a lot of people who are trying to succeed, whether that's in post-Soviet Union space, whether that's in America, yeah. whether that's communism or capitalism. I think the type of negativity that we experience can really break us or make us. Absolutely. I'm very fortunate that my parents were very supportive. Now, when I say very supportive, my parents like were they, they give me a long leash and then eventually if I need to though, they'll have the conversation of like, mm. so I was fortunate that it worked. Again, going back to like risk tolerance, when I first started, I moved home. And so I needed to make this much because I wasn't paying anything to live at home. Then I saved up a year in advance to move out. So my parents knew I had a year before I was like burning my own boat, mm -hmm. so to speak, financially. So I am fortunate to be very close with them. So I have their, their blessing that way. The pressure, for me, I think my pressure is more internal than anything else. And I think that's partly because for good or bad, I'm good at drowning out noise around me. And so like if I hear negativity, I'm like, that doesn't matter. But it's the inner voice that actually, my inner voice that gets me worse than somebody Alice's voice around me. And my inner voice is so much more mean than anyone else I've ever heard. So uh, that's not a good thing, but um, that's the battle I deal with. And to your point, I thought that was very interesting. I found that with my partners. They're both so successful and they sometimes get offered op different opportunities and side gigs or whatever it is. And um, or they get praised on a call from a client and I'm like, why wasn't that me? And I'm like, wait, where did that thought come from? Why did that pop up? I should be celebrating them because we all win together. Either we just win as friends or we win as a business. And I'm like, that to me drove me more, like that made me more upset that that inner thought came up than, than them winning. And that's something I've been really working on working through this year because I want everyone to su uh, succeed. Yeah, that's, yeah, everybody around you, right? Yeah. Because it rubs off of you. When we, and this is an interesting segue um, into 
politics because when we say we want everybody to succeed and we want to feel good for each other, yeah. that's the baseline of communistic mindset. There is no individuality whatsoever. We want our abshina, which is the Russian word for community, mm -hmm. to succeed. We want everybody, man and woman, be equal, which means reducing the femininity out of women, making mm. them more masculine and therefore equal, which is another topic if you'd like we can talk about. Oh, I'm happy to get into that. And what ends up happening is, okay, we are all here for the greater good, but what if someone is gifted or talented or more hardworking than mm. the group, than the abshina? What do you do then? So I think that's why so many people moved to the United States, mm. like myself, especially in the 90s when you start fell apart because, come on, you don't, you don't want to work for the group anymore because the group is going into the wrong direction and you know in your heart that you have the knowledge, the skills to do the right thing. So how do you balance between like almost like on the political level, having the mindset, oh, we have to do it for the greater good versus, oh no, I know better. Because I'm an individual and I would like to do it this way. That's, yeah. The first thing is like, who is the greater good and who is the one controlling the narrative of the greater good? So I worked in politics for five years. Um, I did both sides of the aisle because I wanted to understand how the sausage was made. And I found that both sides suck. And I was like, I'm good. I'm done. I want to get out of this world. Um, but what was the most fascinating takeaway from being there was like, everything is rhetoric. Everything is spinning. And I remember I had uh i guess and sorry for someone who might not exactly know how would you define the word rhetoric um uh, rhetoric would be like people just spinning spinning what a topic is so it's like their pers persuasion right they're mm -hmm. they're um they're saying it in a way to get you to believe something that's all rhetoric and i remember i was uh, i was working on capitol hill as an intern and uh i was walking the halls of congress and I was with a member of Congress and they said to me, they're like, do you know what a win is? I'm like, what's a, what's a win in Congress? And they're like, a win is not when you see someone in their home district banging their drums and being like, I'm going to go to D.C. and I'm going to get all this stuff passed. A win is on a big congressional bill where they get this much funding or whatever it is for their district. Mm -hmm. That's what a win is. I'm like, wait a minute. You're here going then home to your home district, telling everyone why you're going to change the world. They have to vote for you. And this is the only win you get. And he was like, yes, it's a game of inches. And that deflated me. That's almost counterintuitive. Yes. And I'm like, I'm like, why am I spending so much effort for a game of inches? This is not the world I want to play in. So in that narrative, the greater good, that group was not the group I wanted to be a part of anymore. So mm -hmm. I went hunting for a new group. So that's what, that's what I find interesting. Like, what group are you being a part of and what's their mission? If it doesn't serve you, where can you find your own group that has a mission you do align with? And thank God for America where you were able to actually find a group like that. Very great. Because everybody have freedom. I know there will be people that will disagree with me, which is fine, but I believe everybody has a freedom of thought, a freedom of speech, and they have an opportunity to select the group that they want without being um, persecuted or made disappear, which yeah. is a very common, uh, going back to entrepreneurship, very common practice in the entire post-Soviet Union space and during USSR. If you are an entrepreneur, if you're trying to do something on your, with your own money, you're trying to do something on your own, and you're not paying the local mafia, forget it. Really? There is a term called uh, krisha, which okay. is roofing, which means you have to pay a certain amount of money to the local mafia who will protect you, roof you from the local police. That's crazy. 
So how much, so let's say you, how, what percent of your money could that be like 10%? Like is it a significant chunk of change? I think it depends on your revenue. <laughs> wow. So it's kind of like the tax system. You make more they, that is wild. Is it, was it hard for you to leave at the time? Was it hard for you to get out of Soviet Union, like certain papers or whatnot? To... Absolutely. I think both mentally, financially, and just overall knowing that you won't see your family for a long time was really hard. Because it was hard to get back in to see your family or it was right. just financials to come back? It's, it's, it's everything together. Got it. Um, but the hardest, I would say, was not seeing your family for a long time. You um, You mentioned something that I really loved. Your family was supportive. Yeah. What would you suggest people who are on, on entrepreneurship journey, mm -hmm. who are trying to do better for themselves, but don't have their parents' support? I, first thing I would, and again, I don't know their relationship to their parents. So let's say it's a blank slate where I don't know them or that past history. Have the conversation of why you want to do what you want to do. And because again, your parents are supposed to love you. Again, this is why I don't know any of the background. They're supposed to love you. Explain, here's why I'm wanting to do this. Here's my plan. Here is if I reach this false fail safe, meaning like I, I fall, I fail this amount of time. Here's my plan. And then if I, here's my rock bottom. From my rock bottom, I plan on doing A, B, and C. If I feel like a lot of times the root of a lot of issues is miscommunication mm. or lack of communication. And so for me, any time that there's been like a major issue, I found that I'm just not communicating clearly with someone. Uh, me and my partners do it all the time. And we're like, oh, I just didn't explain it this way. And like, oh, I didn't hear you the right way or vice versa. That if to your parents, once you clearly explain and ask them, does this make sense? How do you feel about this? It, then if they don't support you, that's a whole different thing. You need to find like your other family, which could just be another business mentorship or mastermind where they can be your, your pseudo family that way. But I also feel like, did you really explain everything you wanted to explain to them? And then were they open to hear you out? Because I feel like that could solve a lot of issues. I love that. Yeah. Um, I would like to switch gears a little bit. Feminism. Feminism. Let's do it. This wasn't planned initially to talk about. However, I feel like this is an interesting topic because a lot of the content that I see on my Instagram recommendations, TikTok, or just in general in social media is about feminism, the role of a woman, mm -hmm. the role of a man. And especially now because we are talking very heavily about the pay inequality, which I've experienced myself. Mm -hmm. I think... If I did not read a certain number of books, for instance, Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, I would have never thought to ask more mm. uh, when I was interviewing for a few jobs. Um, however, there's some other aspects that really puzzle me. Yeah. When I think about equality, I don't want to be equal. I want to be, be treated better mm. as a woman because there is monetary value that you bring to the family or to the society, and there is non-tangible, non-monetary value. Okay. When you think about uh, men and women bringing value to the society, to the community that you live in. What are some non-monetary values, non-tangible assets that you think are very important for both genders to bring into the society so that we can all succeed? So I think it's, again, about communication, right? So I think it's like, what dynamic do you want and what makes sense? Because, for example, a dynamic that you could have with a partner, uh, what works for you two might be different than what works for somebody else. I don't like similar I see on my Instagram and TikTok, the whole like man should be this way, woman should be that way. If it works for you, phenomenal. If it does not work for you, phenomenal. Figure out what works for you. So I hate maybe another reason why I left government when someone says this is the only way to do something. 
And so as an example, I'm 28 turning 29 actively dating. And I think about this all the time. I absolutely would love to support my family and be like the main breadwinner. But if my partner wants to work and, and we still are able to raise our kids in the greatest way possible, amazing, that's fantastic. It's not like, no, you can't work, that's bad. What do you want? What is your ideal outcome? How do you wanna to contribute to the household? Because are we aligned on the same mission? I feel like that's where a breakdown comes from. Because mm -hmm. if we don't have the same core values, of course we're going to fight about whose role is what. Absolutely. If we're on the same team, why can't we figure it out? Absolutely. I think a lot of men do have a provider mindset uh, by default. Yeah. They are very happy to provide for their families. If their families are happy, it makes them happy. However, in the reality, sometimes you come across a situation where, um, and I've heard this from my friends, you are on a date, yeah. you're not pulling up your wallet yeah. at the end of the date, and the guy feels annoyed. Mm. So I think, so this is my philosophy again. On the beginning of, of, of me taking out someone new, happy to pay because like I'm getting to know you, all that stuff. I also, in a way, think of it like vesting in a company where the idea is like the more I know you, the more He's I'm an entrepreneur, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> the more I know you, the more I'm going to invest in the relationship. But am I going to like from the beginning, this way I don't like pay for it, every single thing without question no am i happy to do it if it makes sense in our context sure but is i, I don't like when everything is just demanded or like like this is how it should be mm. so the more i know you the more i connect with you happy to because i do it with my friends when we're very close i'm about to have coffee with someone after this i'm gonna pay for everything because i miss her company we're close i want to get to like i want to catch up with her i do it with my guy friends it does not matter because that's a relationship i want to invest in but when it's demanded or society society norms of like this is how it should be that i don't like everything to me is communication so that's why i'm saying the more we have a deep connection of course i want to give i want to share with you i want to deepen our connection with you if that means i provide for part of it absolutely because that brings me joy and happiness what kind of behaviors make you want to provide for someone say if you're on a date with a girl mm -hmm. and she pulls up a wallet and offers to pay is this something that makes you wonder, makes you feel, oh, this is not forced on me. I'm happy to pay. Versus where you are on a date and the person never offers to pay. Things like that. Are there any little behaviors or attitudes that raise a flag in your head where you're like, mm -mm, I don't want to provide. I don't want to pay for this. That's also a very good question. I think it's, how is our conversation going? Are you, do I feel that you're genuine? And do I feel that you're real and like, what are you working on? Like, what are you passionate about? Mm. As an example, if I'm talking with someone and I know that they're working their butt off to put themselves through school or, or you know, because they're also starting their side project and I know that money might be a little tighter, absolutely, because I know they're going after what they want. If you can feel early on in interaction that they are used to have everything given to them and they're not, they don't connect with core values that I have, which is what are you passionate about? What do you, what, like, what do you, what's a hill you're willing to die on? Like what's the value, meaning what value are you bringing to the world? Not to me, what are you doing to make the world a better place? If I don't feel like we connect on those things, then that's just, we wouldn't go on a second date. So cool. Well, we'll I'll take care of the first one. It's very nice meeting you. And then like, enjoy your, you know, I wish you all the best of luck. When I find that I align on more core values with people, the more I want to invest in that relationship. So what's interesting is the behavior you were describing where you expect things to be given to you, I find that very often in girls who had amazing dads. Oh, interesting. Because the bar is high. Yeah. Versus when you feel a little hesitant to receive or you don't even know how to receive, most likely you have some daddy issues. 
Okay, that's fascinating because like if a dad, my dad's incredible. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have a great relationship with him. Uh, is there a come to come to a point where then there was there somewhere in the chain that that a father figure above him wasn't as good, which forced him to become a great dad, which then, like you said, maybe the maybe now the daughter feels a certain way. So it's like a little bit of the man tries to be the best version of him and then maybe the daughter can feel a certain way that like that's a standard she lives by. And then the guy taking her out is like, I don't like that this person's expecting something, therefore it doesn't work out mm-hmm. because there's just maybe miscommunication. I, th- I don't know if that came out clearly, but I think about that a lot. Of like you're trying to do the right thing, but then how you're raised interprets how um, I guess you're expecting in relationships. I don't know if that makes sense. But I'm, I'm, I will probably massage that out more. I think, but I think about that a lot. Miscommunication truly, yeah. truly is the number one issue in how we communicate value. Yeah, and I think we don't have this thought. Oh, this must be miscommunication as mm. a default. The default thought is this doesn't feel right. Something is wrong with this person. Something is wrong with me. And when I think about the girls being raised by good dads, I often think that when you have really good backgrounds, when you were raised in a good environment, maybe you don't necessarily have to learn communication skills. How are you defining good in that context? How do you define good communication skills? I define good communication skills in having as many difficult conversations as possible. There's a great Tim Ferriss quote. That's the the bet your life. I'm gonna butcher it, but it's like your the better your life is is uh, due to the amount of difficult conversations you're willing to have. Mm. And so to me, that's good conversations. So how many like headbuttings did you have to figure out what makes sense between the two of you? Mm-hmm. Speaking of difficult conversations, what comes to mind when you think about USSR? Mm. So as a Jew, uh, my family is from Russia. Um, part of it, at least. The other parts from. Ukraine and Poland, all that stuff. So um, my personal line escaped before the collapse, but I also, I, have, I know people who were trapped in jails and not doing so well during that time period. So I'm only coming from the angle that I have of mm. being like the uh, what happened to Jewish people over there, and it wasn't pretty. Yeah. So I don't have the fondest feeling towards former USSR, but I never lived there, so I don't have this nearly as perspective as you would have. What about Russia? What comes to mind when you think about Russia? So I believe with like most places, you can also say with Iran, the government is different than the people. Mm. I also don't know everyone in the government, but the government's more public. Let's just hone in on that. The government is different than the people. 100%. This is the type of quote that cannot be black or white. This is something that you would consider multiple shades of gray. Yeah. Because it's really hard to comprehend the two things at the same time. It's like somebody commits or somebody makes a mistake and they're a good person. Um, I like working here and I don't like my manager. Um, I'm in love with this person and I hate what they do, A, B, C, D. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit more about that. How did you come up, how did you arrive to this arguably very complex conclusion that the government and the people, two separate entities? I think for me it was because I met the people versus the government. Again, I'm not talking about me going to Iran or Russia, but I'm just more like through life experience. But also look at the World Cup as an example. The Iranian players, they at the first game did not want to sing the national anthem. And then there was reports that, that they were threatened to sing it and because the, then their families are going to be in danger. So then they sing it, right? There was all these protests that they supported. Look at the uprising that was happening in there. So 
You will never have a unified country. It's very difficult. There's so many different melting pots in there. But the government is supposed to be elected by the people, which then supposed to be what the country represents. But if the government isn't fully democracy, which there isn't a full democracy anywhere in the world, there's always corruption or whatnot, then that's where it gets tainted. So it's tough. I do find, though, if you're going to get the closest representation of it, it would be the most local government. Your local, I don't know, even like this apartment, if it has a, a board, right? Right. That's the most local because there's not that many different um, levels before you reach the top of it. Mm -hmm. It's easier to influence or talk to the top person because, they, you know, they could be your neighbor. Right. Versus you're not going to call the president. Like, you can't get to the person. You might try, but you won't get to <laughs> You won't get to the person, yeah. But exactly. So that's what, that's what I think. Mm. I feel so rude that I didn't offer to pour water in your glass. No, I prefer this way. Let's yeah, but not. Nah, let's continue on the political route because I think that's like the most fascinating thing. Um, well, yes. Okay, speaking um, to continue conversation around Russia. Yeah. Um, war in Ukraine. War in Ukraine. I think this is something that is on a lot of people's minds right now. I get a lot of messages from Ukrainians who are affected by this. I used to work at a company where half of our quality assurance analysts were from Ukraine and when the war started they would have to hide yeah. and work from some terrible conditions honestly however they would tell me that I'm happy to have a job mm. when when you heard about the war February 24th yeah. do you remember what you did that day um, I don't remember specifically what I did I actually well I mean, the only thing I really remember is I remember being on my couch watching, like, I think flipped on CNN and seeing the early reports and the commentary was all like, um, Kiev will fall in a, in a week, right? Mm -hmm. That was like the beginning of it. Um, but it's, it's, and then I actually, I do remember I was at a conference shortly after and I met uh, a woman from Ukraine and, you know, you could feel like the devastation to it. Oops, sorry. I'm just going to turn that off. But... It's hard. I mean, I think it's absolutely horrible what's happening. Now, I do think what's super interesting is, like, again, propaganda is everything. Rhetoric is everything. So I have um, a close friend of mine who's Russian, and I was asking like her, like, how do you feel about what's going on? And she was like, my parents think that everything is good because this is the information that they're mm. getting versus we might be getting different information. So, again, it's like everything needs to be interpreted with a grain of salt. And that's what I think is fascinating because, like, where is the information coming from? What's true? It's not true. We all know what's happening in Ukraine is horrible. What we don't know is what is being told from the Russian government to the Russian people. And then when you meet someone that has that opposite viewpoint of you, that's where you people are like, screw you. But it's like, no, let's have the conversation. I want to hear what you're hearing so then we can figure out, like, what's actually happening. What makes someone want to say, let me check the source. Let me go and do my research. Because, honestly, I don't think I've met a lot of people who would sit down, look at the, the source, do their research. It takes time. It takes so much time. Plus also like where are you going to get it from, right? So the idea is like CNN is more left-leaning, Washington Post is more left-leaning, New York Times, that way Fox News right-leaning, like um, Wall Street Journal right-leaning. Every narrative you – there's nothing that's down the middle. And even if they claim it's not true, everything has a spin and narrative to it. And so you – like – the thing that I, when I first got into politics, I had to read everything and then I literally had a chart who was on, who was left leaning, who was right leaning. Oh, and then wow. that's how I would balance. So I'd read the exact same topic from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and they were completely different. 
the exact same topic. And I'm like, okay, so at least I can kind of piece together what's happening, but, they're, but they just, the way it's presented to you. And this is, these are credible news, uh, newspapers, but yet they all have their own spin to it. But like you said, we don't have time. Who has the time to do all the research? So that's where we just hopefully rely on an influencer or on media. But then, should we have time? Is it our responsibility? You know, I think about that a lot. I think it's up to if you want to have the time. I think in in America, we're we're blessed to be. You can be isolationist. I also think that's not good. But it's blessed that we don't have these issues on our border all the time. What is an isolationist? So just you're, we have no enemies uh, next mm. to us, right? So we have surrounded by the oceans. Canada's not going to attack us. Mexico's not going to attack us, um, unless they want all of us to drink Tim Horton. Exactly, uh, which is delicious. I'd be That's happy so to fall on that, you know, to sign up for that battle. Yeah, I wouldn't mind. But like, let's take for example, you know, Israel, right? Where I'm, uh, where um, I'm from, like ancestries ago. Every day they're under threats of their surrounding countries around them, right? So they have to know what's going on. They have to then pay attention because it's a part of their everyday fabric. Here, it's not. It's not a part of that. So it's easy to just be like, ah, it's fine. But if we lived during World War II, I guarantee we would know a lot more what's going on. World War I, if mm. we, God forbid, we lived through another war, which I hope we never do, we would absolutely know more what's going on because it's directly impacting our life today. But it's mm -hmm. not, so therefore... Some some of the people, perhaps a lot of people, would have a problem with the statement that um, Israel is having the issues with the con neighboring countries. Mm -hmm. um, depending on what aisle you're on, you'll have different opinions of that. So, isn't Israel also attacking Palestine? Oh, I love this. This is my favorite conversation thread, and I'm so thank you for bringing it up. Um, so it all comes down to understanding the history. So for example, if you, you need to start by saying if, if the real fights come from who said they're there first, right? That's where the, that's where the real issues come from. If you look throughout history that the Jewish people have been there since the creation time, let's say you don't believe in God, you don't believe in Torah, you don't believe in like any of the holy books. Okay, fine. You remove that. Then the time period that everyone can agree upon where Jews lived was during the second uh, temple period where the Romans came in, destroyed everything because everybody knows the Romans and you can still see the artifacts. This much earlier, there's proof, but we're taking a very common time place in history. From there, the, the Jews lived there, the Romans kicked them out, and then the Romans renamed Israel Philistinia, named after the ancient enemy of the Jewish people, the Philistines, but they're extinct. From there, that region was called Philistine. And then throughout history, eventually Britain, so then eventually it was the Ottoman Empire that took over and then eventually the British, called it the British Mandate of Palestine. But there was no official like country of Palestine. It was this just group of areas that lived there. Mm -hmm. Then Jews always, always lived there. So Jews always called it Israel. Years later, when then like um, Arafat came in, he then said, I'm going to call this area Palestine again. And he said, I'm an original Palestinian. But every person that lived there was called Palestinian. Jews, Arabs, it didn't matter. Christians, if you lived there, you were technically under that name because that's what the ruling Western power called it. So that's where a lot of the issues come from of like, who was there first? Technically, the Jews were there first. However, there's still fighting. And the bigger issue is like, if we're talking about who was there first, that's settled. If we're talking about how to make peace, that's a whole different conversation. And that we can get into. But yeah. I always like to make that clear. Understanding the history is the first thing. Doesn't mean it's going to solve anything. 
but I don't like talking about like misinformation. I'm happy to talk about like what I think could be done to help mm-hmm. with peace, but that's a whole different conversation thread if you want to go into that. Yeah, when when you think about uh, who came first, uh, some might argue that uh, Mongols were the ones that came to Russia first, mm-hmm. therefore they have the inherent right to Russian territory. Some Russians nowadays who are in support of annexia Crimea and support of war in Ukraine also say that some of the territories were originally theirs. At what point should we stop looking at who came first, who came last, and start looking for perhaps the greater good and how, and that greater good is what should be defined by the communities involved in that issue and working towards the greater good. Because one of the things that I really uh, curious about is the like the issue of settlers, Mm -hmm. right? And that is an ongoing issue, whether it's covered by the left or right media, it, you know, and and how it's covered, it's irrelevant. The fact remains, it is an issue. So talk to me a little bit about when is it unhealthy to start really looking at the history? Because I do agree, knowing history is key. Mm -hmm. There is significant importance in knowing how people used to live because it helps you to project your future and not make the same mistakes. However, at the same time, when do we say, well, let's stop looking at the past. Let's start looking at the future together. Totally. So first off, all these opinions are my own. I'm not a part of any government. So I always like to make clear, these are just my opinions. I don't represent anyone. Um, settlements are a fascinating topic. And I also, you have, the Israeli government does plenty of things that are wrong. One of the main issues that I see though, is there's not a representation of the government for Palestine. As an example, President Abbas is in his 12th year term, uh, or his 12th year of his four year term. He has refused to give up power. And we see this because even back in 2006, when Israel pulled out of Gaza, they pulled out with no partner for peace. Up rose Hamas, which fires, even two days ago, they fired rockets into Israel. And the um, President Abbas's is government, Fatah, got kicked out of Gaza. So technically, when you're talking about peace, it has to be a three state solution because you have um, President Abbas controlling the West Bank, then you have Hamas controlling Gaza, and then you have Israel, right? Trying to just like in, in, in the middle of all that. Mm-hmm. The issue is President Abbas is really old. And I'm not saying there's like necessary partner for peace on, on the Israeli side, but he's very old. He has not named a successor. And inside the West Bank, because you see it on TikTok all the time, there's uprisings because they because every time they say they're going to have an election, they don't do it. It causes riots in the street. Mm-hmm. So I think no, neither side is in the real position to negotiate peace. And then let's say the West Bank and Israel negotiates peace. That's not going to solve the issue in Gaza because Hamas in their charter says death to Israel. So you don't even have a viable partner to talk there. So you have to be able to solve this problem and then focus on a way to be able to solve that problem. Mm. I'm in no way qualified to talk about this topic. I definitely <laughs> would love to continue this conversation yeah. after I do my research. Sure. One interesting fact that I wanted to bring up is Growing up in post-Soviet Union, obviously I had access to a lot of books in Russian. Yeah. And one of the most fascinating things I learned was that Soviet Union was one of the largest supporters of Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, now I know because for Soviet Union mindset, the communist mindset, if a nation is oppressed, therefore we, we should be there to protect them and support them and therefore convert them to the communistic values. So I found that fascinating. And maybe next time, honestly, I would love to continue this conversation when I have the right knowledge and I do my research. Oh, absolutely. And also like Jews that lived in the Soviet Union did not have a good life at all. The pogroms were there. So a lot of Jews, like I can understand why the former Soviet Union 
would never look fondly on Israel because they never took care of the Jews that were living there in the first place. Yeah, Lenin used to say religion is an opium for the nations. Yeah, so and it didn't matter Jew, Muslim, Christian, Staraveri, which were the old Christians who had completely different traditions yeah. of Christianity, Orthodox Christianity. By the way, a large group of them still lives in lives in Brazil. Oh, interesting! I don't know that. And the way they dress and the way they live their lives yeah. is the same exact way they did centuries ago in Russia. I love that. So it's fascinating. As we wrap up the interview, I have two questions for you. What's the purpose of life? That is whatever you want it to be. That's what it comes down to. Like for me, right? You, you have to figure out what your own purpose is. I figured out what my purpose is because last year I went to Auschwitz on a, on a Holocaust remembrance trip. And um, uh, if, I, if I'm allowed to go deep in this context, um, we were in this... We were on this trip. It was the heaviest trip I've ever been on in my life and the saddest trip. And we were in this open field. Imagine it's like a beautiful day and there was freshly minted snow on the grounds and it was an open mass grave. And uh, the tour guide that I was with told me to move my boot across the snow and look down. And I did. I looked down and I picked up teeth and bones of my family members that the Nazis tried destroying but could not get rid of. And that like shook me to my core more than any other experience I've ever had in my life. You combine that with my experience working for APAC, which is you know a pro-Israel lobby organization strengthening the U.S. and Israel. Something I also would like to research because I have no idea. Yeah, happy, happy what that to. organization is. Um, that to me made me realize my purpose in life is to stop anti-Semitism. My purpose in life is to do that. It's different than anyone else's. So for me, the partner I'm going to marry. She obviously has to be aligned with that mission. The money that I'm earning goes to funding those initiatives. Like that allows me to talk about days where we feel like we're not having great days. When you do something to, when you know what your purpose is and you work every day to that, every day is still an okay or good day because you know you're making progress to that. And that helps me on my really bad days knowing um, the mission, like I can do this. If my ancestors could go through all that hell, I can take another step forward. I can take another step forward. So to anyone that's looking to find their purpose, you have to do a lot of work to figure it out. And my first advice is scare yourself as often as possible because that's where you know where your limits are. And then from there, you'll start being able to figure out, I like this, I don't like this, I'm aligned with this mission, I'm not aligned with that mission. But that's where you learn how to stretch yourself. There is a line in the Quran that says, uh, remember, remember death. Mm. And I know for a lot of people, that's one of the counterintuitive thoughts to have, especially on a daily basis, but I think it's aligned with what you mentioned, scare yourself. Remember yeah. that there is an ending to whatever you're doing, the good and bad. Yeah. What is freedom? Well, for, again, freedom is your interpretation of it too. You can, so there is a great, um, maybe it was Jocko Wilnick, but I apologize if it's not him, that uh, um, the more disciplined you are, the more free you are. Mm. And the Torah, right? what I believe in, also talks about that as well. Um, so the Torah has a line in Pirkos Avos, which is basically a personal development chapter of, of the books that says, um, a man who is happy is a man who's happy with his lot, meaning what he already has. Mm. And so you need to define your own freedom. Your freedom could be having all the money in the world to have all whatever you do, you know, with it. Your freedom could be having health. Your freedom could be having time with your family while still having enough income to provide for them. Freedom is your own interpretation. So you have to do an exercise. So what are my core values? What's it going to take to get there? And then why does that make me happy? Because mm. if it doesn't make you happy, 
How are you going to know if you have freedom? How are you going to know if you have purpose? That's, that's the first thing you need to solve. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.